six, and uh, bring, coming to a close here uh, in the book. Um, I think that if we think of Galatians as a kind of, you know, if it was the only epistle we had, I think we could picture the world that Paul is working in. Um, there is clearly, he's pictured two economies. He's dealt with the problem of the Judaizers. Um, and he's talking about two kinds of human subjectivity. And so in a sense, if you remember the purpose that I said that Galatians was written for, and that is to preserve unity, this is kind of putting the last touches on his effort to maintain unity. And, of course, the legalizing strategy or the legalistic strategy of the Judaizers is uh, that it will, the danger is that uh, it will divide uh, in the way that the law always divides, and that's the way that Paul's described it. And there is the danger... And I, I think we still, in chapter 6, that he still has that danger in mind as he talks about bearing the burdens of others and who's qualified to bear the burdens of others. I think the imagery is the Judaizers are precisely those who would not bear the burdens of others, but in fact would lay a heavy burden on the other and would continue to work. You know, that we've talked about identity through difference, I hope that was, is that a clear phrase to everybody? I'm never sure if I'm communicating. Um, but the idea that, you know, I am who I am on the basis of who I'm not. So I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a woman, I'm not. And so Paul has undone that sort of means of doing identity. Um, and he has equated that, as I understand it, with the, the Judaizers, uh, or with, in, in a sense, it's just uh, the sort of divisiveness that is universal. Uh, but clearly in that sort of identity through difference, you do not help the one who stumbles, because they're precisely the one you would want to maintain a difference from. The oppressed, or the sinner, or the one who is in some way an outcast, our tendency, I think, is to isolate ourselves from those people and uh, become, you know, in terms of Rene Girard uh, in the picture of scapegoating, that when somebody is scapegoated, our natural tendency is to withdraw from that person that is oppressed. What we learn in Christ is we're precisely to bear the other's burden and I think what that means is that when everybody else withdraws and isolates that as a Christian that uh, we're supposed to enter in and where perhaps angels fear to tread because it can be a dangerous thing to refuse to do identity through difference and to in fact identify yourself with someone who's oppressed. So, uh, but what we're describing then, and I uh, pictured this, is that what has been happening around the world is that these messianic, you know, communities, what do we call them, these temple communities, 
these places where God and man commune in the church uh, are really the way in which this alternative uh, creation, you know, Paul's going to talk about new creation, uh, is made evident. And of course, in, in love is characteristic. Now, I, I wrote a sentence here, and then after I wrote the sentence, I realized this sentence sounds like it could apply to Galatia or it could apply to the church of today. Here was the sentence I wrote. The church has been infiltrated by those who say they believe the gospel, and yet they would empty it of any content. Uh, maybe that's just always the problem. Is our, our enemy is not so much the enemy from without, but it's those who have entered into the church um, and give us another gospel. That's what the Judaizers are doing, but maybe that's what just tends to happen. And I, but I believe we can always identify the false teachers, and they will always work through it. I'll, I'll call it a bootstrap economy. What I mean by that is, you've, you've heard of who was it, Lord Munchausen? Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, he, the idea he's going to pull himself up, he's going to get himself out of uh, the mess by pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. Um, the, the identity through difference is a way of, uh, I think, a, it's kind of a closed system. Think of the fall of man, that man becomes the arbiter. And so that in any legalistic system, the tendency is to fall into the understanding you're almost acting in identity through difference or in this bootstrap economy as if God is absent. If God is absent, then you're living in a closed universe. By closed, that means that nothing from outside comes in. in. But the point in a temple community, the point of Emmanuel, God with us, is that we're not living in a closed economy and that we do not then live in an, uh, you know, the, on, according to the knowledge of good and evil or identity through difference. Uh, John Toddy today sent me a paper. I was trying, to, I wasn't actually trying to do two things at once, but I was reading his paper and he, his paper is on Irenaeus and his paper seemed to overlap a little bit with what we were doing. Uh, this is uh, John Bear's picture of the economy of God in Irenaeus. It begins in the glory which the Word had with the Father before the creation of the world and culminates in the glorification of the incarnate Son by the Father, a glory in which the disciples, by beholding it, participate. Therefore, the divine economy describes God's relationship to his creation, specifically God's relationship with humanity from the origin of time until the consummation of time. There's the, in other words, one economy is identity through difference. It's the economy of the Judaizers. It's the false teaching that will always leak into the church. The true economy is one that's based upon God's presence. Does everybody know the word glory? This is the word Humpty Dumpty, you know, when he falls off the wall. 
says glory and Alice says what's that mean Humpty Dumpty says it means whatever I want it to mean <laughs> but so do we know what glory means to radiate to, to radiate the idea of glory and glory it's the presence of God um, it is the idea of incorruptible that something that is glorious you know why the, why is the glory of God revealed at the cross because it's precisely at the cross that you see the ultimate corruption put upon Christ, and Christ is proven divine in his glory, in his incorruptibility. So glory has uh, the, uh, you know, the idea of incorruptible, and even in English, then, the word incorruptible has a kind of twofold meaning. Incorruptible can mean you're not morally corruptible, but it can also mean that physically you're not corruptible. And in Scripture, the two things are connected, right? That those subject to death, to corruption, are in some way subject to a moral corruption. That glory, then, is incorruptibility. And the idea that God's glory, God's presence made available to us through Christ, then, is the center of this new economy. So think here of Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts this, you know, he describes prior to the fall that all that man or man's knowledge was in and through God, that he apprehended and knew everything through God and on the basis of his relationship to God. The fall of man is when man becomes the arbiter of his own knowledge in the absence of God. Um, and so... I think that the Judaizers are doing what people will always do. They'll promote an, an understanding that would, in, in fact, uh, exclude God, function to exclude God. And this is the problem, you know, even Jesus identifies with the law, that the Judaizers are like those who sit in Moses' seat. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. The Judaizers were so intent on imposing the Torah, uh, and they were not willing to bear, and the reason we're talking about bear here, what's, what's taking place in Galatians chapter 6, is bear the burdens of one another. Under this legalistic economy, uh, they're not willing to bear the burdens of anybody. In other words, that's not the way the law functions. So, two economies, two very different kinds of communities. One based on legalism, the other based on love. Uh, one based on identity through difference. The other based on the identity through Christ in which we're unified. Those who do identity through the law who, or who do identity through difference, they cannot identify with the one fallen into sin. They cannot bear their, their burden. And so it is a kind of every man for himself sort of economy. Uh, this, by, this is another, uh, this is from John's paper. And actually this is John. I, I thought he had a good quote here. The heretics were not expelled by an institutionalized church. Rather, the heretics found the gospel based on the preaching of the apostles intolerable. Paul's not 
you know, what's happening in the early church? First of all, I don't think that it's institutionalized enough even to say, you know, who's in or who's out. And that's not Paul's concern. It is in church history that it's those who will be the false teachers, the Gnostics or others, that will in fact separate themselves. I think this is a a kind of an image of the nature of the true church. I don't know that, you know, think of our little fellowship here. We're not in a position to say, I'm sorry, you're out, you know, well, you're okay. But that's what the institutionalized church will do, right? But the danger in that sort of open fellowship is we do have to be clear about what biblical teaching is. But the idea is not that we're going to exclude people, but that we're going to create an alternative economy, an alternative uh, group of people. Um, Just a, a, a couple of scriptures that uh, Jesus himself, you know, Paul, people say, well, Paul never refers to Jesus, but actually throughout this teaching on the Judaizers, it sounds a lot like Jesus. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? <clears throat> That's what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 6. He's going to say, judge yourself. Make sure you're, you know, in a, a, a identify and you know don't judge your brother but judge yourself in uh, uh, let's see this is uh, Romans 15 1 to 3 and by the way the end I th- those of you who were here for the end of Romans do you recognize that we're sort of going through the same pattern by the end of Romans you know he's talking about the community uh, relations uh, and he talks about the weak and the strong in chapter 15 of Romans. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That sounds a lot like the bear the burdens that we're about to read. So I I did a little, I could have stretched this out, but I did, uh, I have a wonderful PowerPoint here. Uh, of We could describe throughout chapter 6, or out throughout the book of Galatians, Paul's describing two economies. I put at the top the entitled one, every man for himself, the Judaizers economy, and then the other economy, bear one another's burdens. Um, the Judaizers, Paul, in, in chapter 6, are going to mistake nothing for something. Does that sound familiar? I think that's the universal mistake that people always make. Uh, That's idolatry. You mistake nothing for something. But it's not just idolatry. It's the universe. You know, we take something, Paul says, you think you're something, but you're actually nothing. Think here of the glory of God. What is something and nothing in terms of, well, in the the absence of God reduces them to nothing. The presence of God means that, you know, if you have God's presence, that's something. Uh, he says that the Judaizers are deceived. Again, the universal predicament of sin. 
They boast in the law. They boast in the flesh. Uh, They sow to the flesh. And strangely enough, he says they won't be persecuted. They're not persecuted because they circumcised. And we could say that they've kind of got a, a human glory, not the divine glory. And then the bear one another's burdens economy is characterized by the spiritual. Paul will contrast the flesh, and I think he means large S spiritual here, Holy Spirit spiritual, gentleness. Uh, they boast not in uh, the, you know, the flesh, but they boast in Christ. Paul's going to end chapter 6 by saying, I, you know, boast in the cross of Christ and nothing else. They will be persecuted. That's the implication. That people who do not submit to the legalizers in Galatia, but I think isn't that always the case? That in some way, if we do not submit to the principalities and powers of this world, that in we, we open ourselves up to persecution. Um, it the whole economy is based on the glory of God and they sow to the spirit not the flesh um, so the zealots are zealous but what are they zealous for uh, they are unspiritual they do not exhibit love which is the fruit of the spirit Paul says in 1 Corinthians if I have not love I am nothing I think they're these people who think they're something, but they're nothing. What's missing? Well, love is missing. Uh, the they they are deceived, and it's a totally subjective delusion. The Greek word indicates they are those who are nothing are not qualified to restore others. The picture here: somebody who's arrogant. Somebody who thinks that they, you know, got it all together. Somebody who thinks that they are well qualified. Probably they're the precisely the ones you do not want in the business of restoring. Who can restore other people? Well, people who take stock of themselves and recognize, I'm a broken person. Uh, you know, I don't know what the rest or you know what the person here might have fallen into. It may be some sin, or it may just be they've fallen back into Judaizing, into legalism. But what Paul is describing then, I think, if if we carry the idea of the problem of the Judaizers over into chapter six, and I think we probably should, that these people don't qualify to bear one another's burdens, and they don't qualify to help restore other people because they themselves need restoring. Paul's going to conclude Galatians. uh, He says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There is, you know, a recreation that's occurring in and through the church. A recreation of us as individuals, as human subjects, but I think it's more than that, that God's recreation of all things is in and through us. Is that too much? You know, we're a pretty small group here. (laughs) Some people 
<laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> uh, the, I think that it may be sometimes hard for us to grasp this. That, but, but that's the image. Remember, are the Galatians any more of a force in their region? Oh, no, they would be even a smaller little community of people. They would even be more of a minority. And yet Paul says that there is a new creation that's occurring in the community at Galatia. This new community is founded with the idea of God's presence, God's glory, and Christ then has started this new... Think I'm, I was kind of thinking of the gospel. I can't think of the New Testament anymore without thinking of the Gospel of John. Um, and the idea then when Jesus goes into the temple well of course Jesus is the true temple the church is the true temple the church is the fulfillment of the law Uh, circumcision uncircumcision still working on that binary right still working on the difference but we do not work on that difference, Paul says, but on according to the presence of God. Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus in 6.17. And what he's actually saying here, it's the, what the mark that he's talking about, that slaves were branded. And Paul's saying, I've been branded. You know, I assume that he's thinking of the scars that he's received in the various persecutions that he's been through. Uh, he does identity not on the mark of circumcision or uncircumcision, but on the basis of the marks, the brand marks of Jesus. He's a bond slave to King Jesus. And that's the alternative identity he's describing. Um, he's, he's already described those who, who would trust in the law in 526 as vainglorious. That is empty glory, self-glory. So if the glory of God is God's presence, what would vain glory consist of? This is kind of an uh, this sounds like a, a silly question, but actually it's kind of interesting if you think about it a minute. What 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 sort of glory is that? Empty glory. Or, uh, it's mistaking there, something for, or mistaking nothing for something. It's precisely that. Yeah. Where do we see glory in our culture? Gold, God, and glory. <laughs> glory and glory. <laughs> okay, old glory, or glory. Uh, or maybe in uh, you know I don't know in some kind of a, a pop star or. Uh, you know, in some celebrity, they seem to just emanate, you know, glory. Uh, think of a king, you know, that when the king, king can be kind of a boring idiot, but the fact that he's a king, everybody, you know, he kind of rate. Well, where does the glory come from? Does it come from the fact that he's a king? Well, where the idea is that he's a king only because people recognize him as a king. Right. Yeah, isn't there something about how we give unto others? Of course, Christ talks about this, but for kings or a ruler, they're only a ruler because people acknowledge him as a ruler. Yeah. His glory is derived from the subjects or people 
who then subjugate themselves to him because they acknowledge him as the king. That's Wouldn't it. that be the master-slave dialect? Absolutely. That here's the master, and the master needs a slave. Here's glory, but to have glory, you've got to have your fans. I'll begin to shine, you know, if enough people. And that's the, that's the picture of the king or any celebrity. You know, why is he a celebrity? Because so many people admire him. Why do so many people admire him? Because he's a celebrity. It's a kind of circular system. It's vainglorious. There's nothing there in this vainglory. Uh, uh, Giorgio Agamben has written an entire book on this, by the way, that this system uh, of uh, a kind I of... I read that, because I, I think I got the, the King example from him or something, because I you recall reading it. Why, why, did I have you read that for... Were you doing a research paper? I don't know. I read it in your class, I think. Maybe. Okay. maybe. I think that's where I got You're it. You're probably the only central student to have read Giorgio Agamben's <laughs> book on glory. <laughs> so the point is that this guy's written an entire book describing glory, but what he's actually describing is what Paul calls vainglory. So the glory of the celebrity, the glory of the king, the glory of the ruler. That's not what the glory of God is. The glory of God is the real presence. Remember our little communion meditation? Where's the real presence? Um, well, it's in the body of Christ that we uh, that it's uh, not just a circulating system of emptiness, but that's precisely the economy of somebody who's actually nobody. Uh, maybe it's the the narcissist. You know, I don't know if you did. I don't know if anybody reads Scott M. Scott Peck anymore. He was a psychoanalyst. He wrote The People of the Lie. Uh, any of you psychology? Uh, counselors here. <laughs> All counselors. <laughs> and never read M. Scott Peck. Well, he, he became a Christian at some point, well into his adult life. And what he was encountering in uh, his counseling, he decided there were some people that were evil. I mean, you know, in counseling, there's not really the category evil you know that they're sick or there's something but he came he kept he came across people that he thought these people are evil and he didn't want he didn't want anything to do with them and so he wrote a whole book he calls them he used the word narcissist but they're extreme narcissists uh and the characteristic of these extreme narcissists sounds a lot like you know the what a good judaizer would be uh, a narcissist is somebody who really can't empathize with other people, just incapacitated in their empathy. The narcissist is somebody who cannot recognize their own sinfulness. They can recognize the speck in their brother's eye, but they can't recognize the log in their own. Uh, so that in, like if, you know, you may, may uh, encounter the narcissist, especially uh, in a religious setting, because they consider themselves very righteous. And religion gives them that kind of, you know, you know, like the Pharisees, but the modern-day Pharisees, Peck said, you'll usually find them in church. Um, they're zealous for the law, but what that means is uh, not for themselves to be in some way, but they're very critical of the other. Um, they're critical and zealous to condemn others, not themselves. 
And, you know, ultimately they're selfish. They're, uh, and the last thing is they're liars. They're deceivers. They're deceived, but they're also deceivers. This language just sounds like the same language that Paul is using to describe these false teachers. I think that we should be able to identify people if they portray certain characteristics. They're dangerous people. You know, make no mistake. If somebody has these characteristics, probably you don't want to be their best friend, you know. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying we disfellowship anybody, but there are some people that I think that are in, in that they do not bear the marks of Jesus. They do not bear the mark of agape love. Uh, and they are like the, the Judaizers. They're zealots for righteousness, but they're actually nothing. And that's the way that M. Scott Peck describes certain people. He said, you know, you do counseling with them, and you realize they're they're kind of diabolical, but if they're, he talks about one lady counsels, and she's single, and she said it's, she's kind of diabolical, but in a kind of small world, because she has no children, she has no real power. But he said, if you gave someone like this power over another person, it would be disastrous. You know, if she should happen to have a child, uh, or if somebody, you know, would put her in charge, or if she, she had actually inherited some money, I think. Um, they are unspiritual in Paul's picture. They do not exhibit the love which is the fruit of the Spirit. If I have not love, I'm nothing. And so these people deceive others, and they deceive themselves. And that's the picture is, uh, in, in Peck. He says that's the one. People of the Lie is the name of the book, which gets at the, the picture that they're inherently deceived. You should probably write this down, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Paul then is trying in chapter 6 to prevent this sort of deception. Each one must examine his own work. And don't get the idea here, you know, Paul has couched this in the idea of agape love. So Paul's not saying don't, you know, don't look at yourself realistically. No, we need to look at ourselves and judge ourselves in a realistic manner. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself, not in regard to another. What are the Judaizers wanting to do? They're wanting to get people circumcised so they can brag about the disciples they have. They're wanting to brag or boast in your flesh, Paul says. Um, that is not that does not meet the standard of love. Uh, it does not meet the standard. You know, we just done the fruits of the spirit. Uh, the fruits of the spirit is not focused on those sorts of work but on the work of love. And I think that's what Paul means here. Uh, that's the fountainhead of faith, of love. That uh, you know. And so Paul elsewhere talks about the work of faith, the labor of love in 1 Thessalonians. So to examine one's work according to one, uh, uh, to assess it on the basis of one's faith and love, uh, to state, take stock of one's faith, is Paul's picture in 2 Corinthians 13.5. 
And then the effect of that self-awareness focused on love is you judge what you're judging is the degree to which you have an other awareness. Uh, it's not that you boast in ourselves, uh, you know, in the sense of having strength, but the idea you take stock of, of who you are. Uh, so the most widespread illusions about ourselves happen because we compare ourselves to other people, right? And of course, that's easy to do because if I'm going to compare myself to somebody else, <coughs> I'm going to try to pick somebody where I come out pretty good in the comparison. Uh, that that's the very method, the identity through difference. I'm not like them or, you know. Well, the very method is delusional. Uh, maybe that's maybe we can stop there. Paul talks about boasting. I think that clearly he's talking. He will conclude by talking about, "Oh, I boast in the cross of Christ alone." Uh, uh, as I was uh, writing this, this is my last thought. I was thinking, you know, when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And this is in the discourse in chapter 14 and 15 in John on the vine and the branches, on the household of God. Where does Jesus go to prepare a place? Well, I think the preparation, the sort of preparation that we're seeing, and that's defensible in the words that John is using. He's using the word oikos, the word household of God. Jesus is preparing a place. He's not the, the idea is not that he's up in heaven doing carpentry work, you know, tap, tacking together a really nice room. <laughs> but the idea is that he goes before us to prepare a place. I think that the preparation that Paul is picturing, the preparation that we're all going, is the place as we make room in our lives for Christ and other people, this is the many-roomed mansion that actually is, Jesus calls my Father's house. We are the Father's house.